0: to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Good morning, great to be with you, my name is Matt. One of the pastors here. Well, we've got an interesting passage today uh, from Daniel chapter seven, uh, made more interesting by uh, to me because uh, as it turns out, we're baptising my daughter tonight, and what better passage to accompany uh, baptism than for demonic beasts coming out, out of the ocean? <laughs> Seems very apt. But as I as I thought about it a bit more, uh, I realised that in Daniel seven is something of such substance and significance that really. It would be something I would long for Lucy to walk to grow up knowing and loving. I spent lots of time recently uh, on my knees next to her cot with my arm draped over on her back, as is her custom re need for sleep. Uh, that's our sleep position. And I found myself praying for her, praying for her future, praying for her life. And to be honest, at times filled with a bit of anxiety. You know, what kind of world will she grow up in? How will it treat its women? How will technology have dominated and defined her life? kind of nations will be warring with one another based on what's happening today? Will there be a world left for her? You know, there's common anxieties that come with you at 3 a.m. as you lie draped over a cot. I think Daniel 7 speaks into anxious times like ours. Actually, it's designed to speak into much more uh, devastating times than ours, times of great persecution and upheaval and problems where basically all hope is running out. And I think in an anxious age, as well as in a deeply devastating age, we need to find bedrock. What are the things that we hope for? What are the things that our trust is in? They're the truths that Daniel 7 gives to us. Three things from Daniel 7 that I hope Lucy grows up knowing. First one is this. The beasts will not reign forever. The beasts will not reign forever. Daniel 7 verse 1 starts within the first year of Belshazzar, which takes us back in the timeline of Daniel a bit. King of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed and he wrote down the substance of his dreams. Uh, Through the middle bit of Daniel, there's a transition out of the historical narrative of Daniel's times into his crazy dreams, his his dream journal, if you like, uh, which is full of very interesting things, and it's a very different back half to the front half of the book. Now, the back half is what you would call apocalyptic, by which we don't mean zombies or climate apocalypse, those kind of things. The word uh, apocalypse just means an uncovering, a revelation, a revealing, of things unseen. Now, people struggle with this genre in the Bible, in Revelation, Zechariah, other parts of the Bible, uh, because it's a genre. You know, it's like science fiction or period dramas or movies with Hugh Grant. There's a style to it. There's certain things that happen in it. And one of our struggles is we treat them a bit too much like puzzles at times, these kind of passages, puzzles to be solved. Which horn was that? Where's Nero in this? Or, you know, when's the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire? And it becomes, uh, we treat it like a road map to history that we, if we just decipher, we'll work it out. But apocalyptic should be read a bit more like Lord of the Rings, if I can find my picture. Grand, epic proportions. Mythic battles. World history played out in cosmic, magnificent, terms, revealing to us not the details of history, but their ultimate outcome. Apocalyptic isn't a roadmap to history, it's the key to history. That's how we are to read it. And so as we we continue through Daniel 7, we, we get this picture of Daniel. He's in his bed at night, and he looked, and there before him were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, and four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. And he describes these four beasts coming up out of the sea. And the sea in ancient culture was a place of chaos and evil. It was the power from that threatened to overthrow the goodness of the earth. This is a very cute uh, picture of them. Perhaps this 19th century picture is a bit more apt. The dark, foreboding sea and the beast's silhouette rising up out of it. This is more the stuff of Daniel's dream, I think. It's nightmarish. At the end of chapter 7, he turns pale. Uh, At the end of chapter 8, after more visions, he has to lay in bed for a few days. So there's your excuse to not going to work tomorrow. But what are these visions about? Well, verse 15 gives us a very simple explanation. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of those standing there, an angel, and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me, the four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But... The holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Ultimately, what is this whole vision about? It's about the fact that though beastly kings will come up over God's people, throughout all of history, the Jewish people and then the believers in our Lord Jesus Christ And though those beasts come up, they will not stop God's people receiving His promises. And the great end of all the cosmic battle will be His people living in His kingdom forever. The beasts will not reign forever. Daniel 8, I think, uh, the next chapter dials this up a bit further. It gives us a picture of a a ram and a goat, and tells us that one, the ram is uh, Medea and Persia, and the, the goat is Greece, and describes these two kingdoms fighting each other. It labels the kingdoms, unlike Daniel 7, and, and then gets to this point where a, a horn rises on the goat and, the, and makes war on God's people. And it makes sense maybe that that might be, uh, I'm going to skip a couple of slides, Antiochus IV, who was a great persecutor of the Jewish people in the second century and slaughtered many of them and was brutal in the way he treated both Jerusalem and its inhabitants. You see, these beasts aren't just fanciful figures in the sky in a dream. For God's people, in different times in history, in in days today, who are living under intense persecution and pain, these are real words of hope. That the powers that oppress will not stand forever that the powers of evil in this world will not stop god's purposes forever god's kingdom will stand and last and god's people one day will receive his promises the beasts will not reign forever but why why won't the beasts reign forever very important part of this vision and the reality is that in daniel 7 the reason why the beasts won't reign forever is because there is a higher throne and a coming judgment a higher throne and a coming judgment as you move through the beasts in chapter 7 if you look at them in a little closer detail The first three beasts are interesting. They're they're scary and they're hybrid animals, bit human, a bit animal, different animals, all mixed together, but all of them are kind of on a leash. So the lion in verse 4 has its wings torn off and it's given a mind like a person. Someone's interacting with it. The same with the bear, it's raised up and it's commanded to do something. Someone has authority over it. And even the third beast, the leopard, in verse 6, it's explicitly said that it was given authority to rule. So those first three beasts, it feels like they have leashes on them. Though they are fierce and beastly, God is still in control. But when you get to the fourth beast, it doesn't feel like that. The fourth beast in verse 7 is terrifying and frightening and powerful. He crushes, devours victims, tramples underfoot whatever is left. Daniel is so disturbed by the fourth beast that he asks a follow-up question of the angel. I don't know if I'd be brave enough to ask a follow-up question of an angel, but Daniel does. And he says, well, then I wanted to know in verse 19 the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and it was terrifying. And it crushed and it devoured, and as I watched, the horn waged war against the holy people and defeated them. The angel says, yep, this is going to be a fierce beast that arises, and it doesn't feel like this beast is controllable, not like the others. But then the whole scene changes, and disappears the dark dream of the sea in the silhouettes, And up arises a picture of a throne. We shift from narrative to poetry. And we get a picture of this ancient of days who takes his place, takes his seat. And he is pure, white, covered in white. He is ancient, which in cultures where they actually venerated people of age, he is so ancient, so old, so everlasting that he has the wisdom and insight to make judgments. And he is terrifying. His throne is ablaze with fire, and fire goes out from under his throne. And he is the center of spiritual reality. It says that thousands upon thousands attend him. Ten thousand upon ten thousand stand before him. The sea goes away, and we are brought into a court scene. You see, the reason why... The beasts won't last forever. And particularly why the fourth beast will not reign is because God will ultimately judge. And then before Daniel's eyes, this is where it turns into a real nightmare. The beast is slain, its body is pulled apart and then it's thrown in the fire. The evil is exposed, judged and destroyed forever. Forever. It's a remarkable picture. It's also a very full-on picture, isn't it? Of God's judgment of an earthly ruler gone out of control. It's interesting when we think about the throne of judgment uh, and we try and a- a- approach it in our liberal Western culture. We don't like, we, we dislike the idea of judgment, I think, for the exact same reason why persecuted minorities desperately longed for it. We dislike it because it ultimately means that though we long to be free, someone will call us to account. And we don't want that. And yet for a persecuted minority who are being slaughtered innocently, who've had all their power taken away, their only hope is that someone will call them to account. This is a really interesting moment for us as a culture, because what do we go with? We're supposed to be people who love justice, but we love our own freedom. And what the passage reveals to us is that ultimately to be people who long for justice is to be people who long for God to judge. For God to hold all beastly power to account, even ours. But did you notice how also there's a positive verdict? In the interpretation of the dream, it says the court sits and the power is destroyed. But it also says, Daniel says in verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people. There's a condemnation of the beast and a vindication of God's innocent suffering people. It is only through judgment that the beastly reign will end. And this makes me think about my favorite scene from Lord of the Rings. I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd, and it's just, it just came in this sermon. I'm sorry. My favorite scene in Lord of the Rings is that the last few scenes. All through the movie, you have this dark tower with a freaky eye at the center of the dark spiritual power of Middle-earth. And as long as it stands, evil will stand. As long as it is, it is there, Sauron will endure And then there's that beautiful moment at the end of the film where the power is broken. And these characters who've lived their entire lives under the reign of evil watch the tower fall and experience the glorious moment when evil is finally judged and dealt with and done forever. You know, that might seem pie in the sky. But when you think about who Tolkien was who wrote this, it's not so much. You know, he sat in a trench in the First World War in France and watched his friends die. He released the Hobbit in the Second World War. He was no stranger to evil. He was no stranger to devastation, to the loss of life of the innocent, and to the machinations of war. And it's really interesting considering him as a man of faith and looking at my own faith and realizing that he has such a strong, confident vision and hope of God's future that I struggle to have in our anxious world. I feel consumed too much by the anxiety of our culture over the way the world is and find myself too little on the disciplined disciplined and confident hope that he had. Friends, I feel Daniel 7 almost summons us to repent of our hopelessness at times, of our despairing anxiety about the way the world is, and our desperate fearfulness in which we engage with life and culture. Friends, there is a higher throne. And one day, beastly power in all its forms will be exposed, judged, and destroyed and dismissed forever. There will be one glorious day of watching the tower fall, because there is a higher throne and a coming judgment. But the third thing we need to think about in this is: well, that all kind of feels like a fairy tale a bit of God's future. But There's a very important part in this passage. that's very important for understanding the whole story of Scripture. Because in verse 13 and 14, what we get a picture of is the one who will reign forever. And in verse 13, we read this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed you see though the beasts will not reign forever there is one who will And we have the picture here of a a son of man, of a person, of someone in history, a rightful king, being handed all of the kingdoms of the earth. There will be one who reigns forever, who, who comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days and is not thrown into the lake of fire, but leaves with the authority and the glory that all nations and all people should worship and honor him. And it speaks of him coming on the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven were Yahweh's, God's domain. To ride on the clouds was to ride in with his authority and power and glory. And this king will come with God's judgment and glory upon all the peoples of the earth. There will be such a person, it says. And so the Jewish people through their history were longing for this person, this this person in whom the promises of God would touch history and he would enact the reign of God, his kingdom, and establish it forever. And yet the person who takes it on his lips takes it on his lips at the least likely moment in the most extraordinary circumstances, in his trial scene. The Lord Jesus, when questioned about his identity, when they were just trying to roll the dice and find a way to condemn him, as they already had planned, he claims, and you will see, the Son of Man, sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Think about how almost pathetic it looks at this point. Jesus is in a kangaroo court about to be condemned. After actually this, he gets condemned, then they start beating him, okay? And he claims to be the ruler of Daniel 7, the one who will walk into the presence of God and receive all dominion. And they call him out as blasphemous, condemn him, and kill him like a beast. What is happening here? Why does Jesus use this? And he uses at most, the Son of Man language, in connection with his death in the Gospels. Why? Well, the reality of Jesus is that he is unlike any of the beasts that we know. He comes into power not by way of trampling or devouring, not by way of overextension of arrogant strength and power. He instead comes and receives glory by laying down His life in order to give us His kingdom. Why? How does this all work? Well, I've already given away this. Uh, do you know what the, the most famous animation scene is? And wh- one of the most famous a- animation scenes considered uh, in uh, the field is in the Beauty and the Beast 90s version, not the Emma Watson one. When the Beast becomes a man. And what's really interesting, go find this on YouTube later when you hear the, the, uh, the animator talk about writing this scene. Really interesting. Uh, he's a very well-known Christian in Disney, actually. He was. Uh, and he talks about laboring over this scene because in it he saw what the Lord Jesus did for him. You know, the Lord Jesus was condemned like a beast, slain, thrown into the fire of God's judgment on the cross so that we, though, let's be honest, beasts, might become men and women again and receive his kingdom. You see, Jesus comes into his kingdom by way of the cross. Rising from the dead, he ascends into heaven and fulfills Daniel 7, sits down at the right hand of God and will come again in glory on the clouds of heaven to judge all the beastly powers of the earth. And to watch the tower fall. And that coming judgment makes us more aware of our beastliness. And our need of his death to become human. And our need of his death to receive his kingdom. Friends, this is our bedrock. The beast will not reign forever. There is a higher throne. And the one who was given authority and power is the one who died so that though we should be condemned as beasts, might live with him in his kingdom forever. Friends, turn from your anxiety and find your confident hope. Let's pray. Father, we come today aware of how our culture is infecting our hearts with anxiety and fear when we know we've been revealed to us the great end of the story the coming of our lord jesus and of his kingdom without end and of the beasts who last but for a moment and yet of his willingness to be crushed for us that we might have his future forever Father, we turn from our anxiety and we ask by your Spirit that you would stir up our hope that in the midst of an anxious age, we would be calm, resolved and steadfast and sure. We pray in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus. Amen.